listening to the Long Hollow Young Adults Podcast. We are the Young Adults Ministry at Long Hollow Church, located in Hendersonville, Tennessee. If you are interested in learning more about us or looking to attend one of our gatherings, you can follow us on Instagram at LHYoungAdults or visit longhollow.com for more information. And now, a message from our Young Adults Pastor, Dylan Young. Oh, hey, it's great to see all of you. Man, if, you, uh, if you've been following along with our series, you know we've been talking about some different topics that fall under this idea of deconstruction and, and reasons people start to walk away from the faith, things that ultimately lead them to walk away. Because um, we wanna be able to walk through something like doubt or questions in our life and do it in a healthy way and do it in a way that actually leads us to stronger faith. So that's why we're in this series called Crisis of Belief. And tonight we're actually just gonna look at the Bible itself. And what is this book? Is this something that's still relevant for us today in 2023? Is it just an old book of moral philosophy? And what actually is this book that we hold in our hands? And a few years ago, uh, Rachel and I were at a different church in in another town, and we were there to hear this apologist speak and uh, give us some, some of the kind of defense of the faith type stuff. And he did a really good job presenting these things. And one of the things, I think maybe the thing I appreciated about him the most was his, this idea he, he gave to us that like, hey, this faith, this is not a just like, well, the Bible says it, we believe it, that settles it type of faith. This is actually a faith that we investigate, that we put time into, that we see if it lines up with what we see in reality. That's the type of faith that we have. That's the type of uh, book that we have in the Bible. That was what he presented to us. He gave us all of these great defenses of the word, and then still that was his mindset. Like, don't just take my word for it. You go investigate for yourself and do your homework on this book that we have in front of us. And uh, he did a great job. We we thought he presented um, the Bible and defended it very well. And then the, the pastor of the church got up just to dismiss everybody for the night he thanked the, the apologist for being there. And he said, well, folks, you heard it. The Bible says it, we believe it, that settles it. And Rachel and I looked at each other like real concerned, like, man, did he just miss that whole presentation? Like, did he miss the part where he said almost verbatim, that is not our faith. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I get what he's saying. Like, we have absolute confidence in the word of God and the things that it says, but man, our faith is not a blind faith that, man, just because somebody says this is the word of God, we believe it. And, and we, like, that's, that's not the attitude that I think we should have. And I think probably the, the mindset that comes along with that has probably hurt more than we would care to realize. Um, so that's the type of mindset that maybe you need to work against a little bit tonight. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the idea that has sent you down a road where you, you're doubting some of the Bible. Wherever you are tonight, whether you're skeptical of the Bible, maybe you've never read it before, maybe you've already got a great confidence in the Bible. What I hope you will leave with tonight is more confidence and more trust in this book than you had when you walked in. That's what I'm hoping you walk away with tonight, no matter where you're at right now. Um, and as we do that, I wanna, I wanna pray as we begin and just ask the Lord to open our eyes to, to the goodness of his word. So pray with me. God, we are so grateful that you would reveal yourself to us in word form, um, that we can carry with us, that we can memorize, that we can have with us at all times. 
Well, we're really grateful that you would do that to us. And God, I pray tonight um, that you would open our eyes to see the wonders of your word. That you would open our eyes and give us a greater trust in your word than, that, than what we walked in with and that we might walk out praising a God who would write a book like this, who could actually pull that feat off. Lord, we love you. We ask you to speak to us through your Holy Spirit, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this, this message tonight is going to feel a little different than some of our others. Um, I don't want this to just feel like an apologetics type thing, just defending the Bible. That's, that's not the feel that I hope you leave with. Um, but I want to give you a little insight just on how we got here as a group of people, why some of the reasons people start doubting the Bible in the first place, and where kind of the mindset comes from with that. And then we're going to look at, okay, so what did, what did the early church think about the Bible? What did Jesus think about the Bible? What does all of that mean for us today? So that's kind of the roadmap of where we're going tonight. So to begin with, uh, Pastor Robbie a few years ago asked me to research the millennial generation for a presentation we were doing with, with Replicate Ministries. And it's actually, it ended up on the Replicate podcast. I don't even know if the Replicate podcast still exists. I think it was like episode 73 and 74, if you want to go hear Dylan from like five years ago. Uh, but I, he asked me to look into millennials and one of the characteristics of the millennial generation that stood out to me, and I think has carried over into Gen Z as well, is the willingness to ask the question, why? You don't have to believe something just because your parents did. Like you, here's where I think it comes from. You have, the whole world is open to you. The whole world is. It's at your fingertips with your phone. And that's something that generations before you didn't grow up with. They didn't have the freedom that you have to explore all sorts of things. So they didn't even, like asking the question why wasn't on their radar like it is for you. You, know, there, you can, you ask questions like, why should I go to an office to work? And that's something in the past that nobody would ever question, right? Why should I uh, listen to the radio when I can pull up Spotify and play my own music or play a podcast? Why would I go to the Smoky Mountains, just drive over in Tennessee, and when I can hop on a plane and in just a few hours be climbing the Alps? Like the whole world is at your fingertips and it leads even into your faith of why would I just go along with the faith that my parents have when, man, I got all sorts of religions I could check out and find out about just by going onto the internet. The, the whole world is available to you. I mean, y'all, it's a good thing to ask the question, why? You're blessed in a lot of ways to have grown up in the world that you are. Um, and please hear me. Asking questions is a good thing. I hope you've gotten that from these last few weeks that we've been in. Asking that question, why, is a really good thing. It, it takes... It takes more to convince you of something, and that's okay. That, that's a strengthening of your beliefs, if you will. That's okay. The way that we go wrong sometimes um, in that willingness to ask why is just living in a general skepticism of everything. And if I'm honest, I sense that a lot in conversations that I have with you guys. There, there's a lack of willingness to trust hardly anything and I would say to you, it's good to be skeptical. It's good to reserve judgment on things, but man, it's also okay to trust people. You can put your trust in some things. You don't have to stay at arm's length from everything. Like be, be willing to put your trust in something. Don't just walk around skeptical all the time. Um, now, tonight, if you're, if you're already convinced 
that this Bible is the word of God. I hope tonight strengthens your faith. Um, but if you're coming in skeptical, I would just ask you to consider letting your guard down just for the next 30 minutes to consider whether or not this might be the actual word of God, whether this might actually be a divine book that has a supernatural nature to it. Would you consider that for us just over the next few minutes? And with that backdrop in mind, the, the first thing I want us to see as we look historically at the Bible is just what did the early church believe about the Bible? And the early church believed this was the word of God. And so let's refer, and this is a note-taking message if there ever was one. Um, the early church believed this was the word of God. That's, that's, uh, what they were, that's the mindset they were operating within. And, and when I say early church, I'm talking essentially first century New Testament times. That's, that's the, the time frame I'm talking about. Um, and I wanna show you from the New Testament a few examples that show their belief in this being the word of God. So the first of those is from 2 Timothy 3. This is Paul writing. And he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who have taught you and you know that from infancy you've been known, you have known the sacred scriptures. So they have this terminology, scriptures. There's something they view as scripture. There's a, there's a set uh, of texts that they call scripture, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And here's where we really see it. All scripture is inspired by God. It is God breathed, if you will, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. They viewed this as, man, their whole life. Like they're looking to this book for everything they need because they believe it's the word of God. Second Peter. You can look at 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, above all, you know this, the prophecy of scripture, and this is speaking to the divine nature of scripture again. No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, they believe this text is the word of God. He wrote it through man. Just give you another couple of references in Acts 18, verses 24 and 28. Acts 18, verses 24 and 28. We just see another one of those references to them calling this collection of texts that it was the Old Testament for them at the time, calling it the scriptures. They, there was clearly a set of documents that they viewed as this thing called the scriptures. And then again, in 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, we see the letters of Paul being affirmed. Um, so not just the letters written by the, the 12 disciples that we see, they're affirming Paul's writings there as well. Now, I, I wanna take you into the world of collecting these documents a little bit. They, they believed enough in this word that they went through a thorough, tedious, extensive process to collect it and to copy it so that it was available for more and more people. Uh, there's a book called Destroyer of the Gods, which is, man, what a title. Um, Destroyer of the Gods, honestly, is a great book. It's not one I would recommend because it is super academic and not near as exciting as a title Destroyer of the Gods would seem. Uh, but he described the, the early church as bookish. They were distinctively bookish. 
That was something that made them stand out from other religions in the first century. They had this set of texts and they were dedicated to it. This is something that was unique to the Christian faith even then. Uh, it made them stand out. And they were so dedicated to it even that um, the, the writer of this Destroyer of the Gods book, he said that they were um, even pushing the envelope of book technology at the time. They were the ones pushing this forward because they wanted more and more efficient ways that they could copy this down so they get, could get this word of God out to as many people as possible. Now, why are they trying to push the envelope on that? Because here's what the process looked like to, to copy the word of God. Usually it required four people. They would have one person with the, the word of God. Here, they've got one person with the text. They got one person looking over their shoulder. So this person is reading it out loud. They've got one person looking over their shoulder, making sure they're reading it correctly. Then you've got a third person who is copying it down, listening to them and copying it down. And you've got a fourth person looking over their shoulder to make sure that they're copying it correctly. Y'all, that's a tedious process. Um, and some would even say, <laughs> I don't know if this is true or not, but if they made a mistake, they would stop and they would wash themselves in a mikvah, which was like a baptismal to... <laughs> to almost cleanse themselves of the error they had made. Uh, that's maybe speculation, but if that's real, y'all, this took a long time to, to get a, one of these letters copied, right? And it's estimated that if you take the book of Romans and went through this process, just with the book of Romans, it would take about 11 to 12 hours to copy, to make one copy of it, which honestly, I, I thought kind of sounded quicker than I thought it would be, but there's a lot of work that went into preserving this book. They believed this was the word of God and that's the only reason they would go through that process of preserving it. That's what the early church believed. What did Jesus believe about it? Jesus also believed this was the word of God. And listen, I know this sounds like elementary, but we need to, we need to have all this in our mind. Jesus also viewed the Bible as the word of God. And we observe Jesus regularly going to the synagogue where the, where the scriptures are being read and taught that in and of itself feels like an affirmation of sorts. Uh, and there are plenty of examples of Jesus quoting the Old Testament, quoting the scriptures that they would call. But let me give you just one example of him commenting on the scriptures that they have. And that's from Matthew 5. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, so the law or the prophets being the Old Testament scriptures, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So not only does Jesus believe the Old Testament as the word of God, he's also saying, hey, all of this is pointing to me. I am the one showing you what all this looks like lived out. I'm the one fulfilling what you have been reading in the Old Testament. And, and to give you maybe even even more blatant picture of what he's trying to get the people to, to see here, I want you to picture this scene. He walks into the synagogue on the day where it's to be read to the people, and he goes up to the front of the room, grabs the scroll, and he says this to the people in Luke chapter 4. It says, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is like, get, get this in your mind, what he's doing right here. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed on him. And he began saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled by me, right? That's a cool scene of Jesus saying, hey, this whole thing is about me. Not only does he approve the scriptures as being from God, he says they're all pointing to him and he doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say, as John records it in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Like the, the way you've been trying to live, it's, it's me, watch me. The truth you've been trying to live in, it's me. The life you've been trying to live, this abundant life that comes from following God, it's me. Like watch me, follow me. All of this is through me. I'm the filter, if you will, for what is the word of God. And then we see, we know John records in John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And he's talking about Jesus. Not only is Jesus the filter for what the word of God, like if it doesn't line up with Jesus, this is not scripture. Not only was he the filter, he was the word made flesh, living among us. Jesus believed this was the word of God. Now this makes us ask a question. Is this the same book they had? Is this the same book Jesus and the others are talking about? We need to ask that question. Um, now, if, we, if you're thinking about dating of the Bible and the, and the accuracy of the um, recording of the scriptures, I wanna point you to Pastor Robbie's sermon. I believe he preached it on May 1st of this year. Um, he went into pretty good detail on this very specifically, and I don't want to just say the same things he said. So go back and listen to that from May 1st. Um, but suffice it to say, you know, the Bible is without a doubt, in my mind, the most validated historical document in history, and it's not close. Like there, we have, it's, it's just not close. There's nothing that can compete with the, the documentation that we have of this word of God. It is the same book that it was back then. How do we know these are the right books? How do we know there shouldn't be more or less? How do we know those things? Well, in a nutshell, again, we're gonna to look to Jesus, right? Jesus is the filter of these things. Jesus is the one who affirms the Old Testament scriptures and he authorizes the writing of the New Testament scriptures. You can think about it in that way. So we see him affirming the Old Testament. He's regularly quoting from the three parts that people thought of the Old Testament in three parts. So you've got uh, the, old, the prophets, the law, and the writings. And Jesus is quoting from those three things all the time. It gives an affirmation in that way. Now you might ask about, uh, there are a set of books called the Apocrypha. These are books that were written in the intertestamental period, if you will, if you will between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why do we not have those in our, in our Bible, right? Well, we don't see Jesus citing those things. We don't see Jesus giving approval to those writings. And we don't see any of the other New Testament writers doing that either. So those are not in. They didn't go through the filter of Jesus, if you will. And then Jesus authorizes the New Testament to be written. So he, uh, there's, there's a couple of references that I'll, that I'll give you to look up later, but John 14, 
25 and 26, he's talking about, in both of these, talking about the Holy Spirit is gonna bring to memory the things you need to say and the things you need to remember. John 14, 25 and 26, and then John 16, 12 through 15. And you know, one of you emailed me this week and asked if you could get my notes from a past sermon. If you ever want these notes, please let me know and I'd be glad to give it to you. Especially tonight, I know we're covering a lot of ground. I'm gonna throw a lot of books at you. We'll, we'll figure out a way to get you all this stuff, but please let me know if you ever wanna see this stuff. Um, so the New, the New Testament books, they're either written by somebody who was an apostle, that just means somebody who has firsthand experience with Jesus, or they're written under an apostle's uh, oversight, if you will. Maybe written by a different person, but had an apostle's oversight. And then that's it. Once the apostles are gone, nothing else gets in. That, that's the stop of it. Jesus approves the Old Testament and he authorizes the New Testament. That's how we know in a very simple way what books we have. This is how we, how we know what our canon of scripture is. Even still, what about all the contradictions, right? As if you go to the internet, that's what you're gonna find. Well, even if it is the same book they had, even if it is the right set of books Jesus wanted, well, it's still got all sorts of contradictions in it, right? And I, I, again, I said, I'm gonna throw books at you. There's one by a guy named Mark Clark that I really want you to be familiar with. My, my D group just started reading this. It's called The Problem of God. I mean, he does a really good job laying out the answers to some of these questions in simple ways. It's not like a college professor is writing it. It's an easy to read, really, uh, I highly recommend you checking that book out. The Problem of God by Mark Clark. Um, and he, he has a good section on the Bible as a whole, but specifically speaking to these contradictions that we see. And he's informed a lot of my thoughts here. Um, there's, a, there's a New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman. I, I, I'm not 100% sure how to say his name. Um, and ironically, I believe he's a guy that Rhett references a lot from Rhett and Link um, in, their, in his podcast about um, deconstructing his own faith. His name's Bart Ehrman, and uh, again, ironically, he's a New Testament scholar. He's one of the leading people pushing against the New Testament, which I think is interesting. Um, but he has a book in which he claims that there are 400,000 contradictions in the Bible. That number should alarm you. Like, that's concerning. If, there are, if we just talked about this process where they're copying this thing down, I mean, if they're going through that process and come up with 400,000 mistakes, I mean, the book's not that big. Like that's a, that's a lot going on there if that's a legitimate number. So we need to investigate that, right? That's a, if that's a, a real claim, we need to figure out what we think about that. And thankfully what we see as we dig into those numbers is that honestly, oh, there's some fancy math going on to get to that number. Um, for one, as you, as you start to look into some of the, the contradictions that, push for, that people bring forward, yeah, honestly, a lot of them are not that hard to reconcile. Uh, they're, they're things that don't change meanings of texts. They are, I mean, you can find myriad examples online, but the vast majority of them are things that are not concerning. It's things like in the two uh, recollections of going to the garden tomb when Jesus is risen from the dead, one of them says there was one angel, the other one says there was two. Y'all, that's not a big deal. If there were two angels there, then there was one there. One just chose to say there was one, the other one said there was two. It's not something that changes our faith, um, but, but you're gonna hear that that's a contradiction and the whole Bible is, is illegitimate because of that. Um, it's, it's not things that should cause you any lack of trust in the Bible. 
Uh, and second, the vast majority of the quote-unquote contradictions are really minor grammatical things. Most of them are different spellings of a word here and there. Again, nothing that's going to change a meaning of a text. Um, and that number 400,000, you need to know how he gets to that number 400,000. So what he does is he takes, if there is a, a difference that he sees in a, in a copy of a text, so if we got a copy of Ecclesiastes, everybody's favorite book, right? If we got, uh, some, if we, if we got a different spelling in a word there, well, we're going to take, if there are a thousand copies of that, well, he's going to say that one mistake is actually a thousand mistakes. So if I was printing copies of something I had written in the office over here, I'm printing a hundred copies of it, and I realized 75 copies in that I accidentally put a comma somewhere that I didn't mean to. I stop the printing, I remove the comma from my document, and I print the next 25. We would call that one mistake. We would call that one contradiction, if you will. He would count that as 75 contradictions. And y'all, I want you to hear that is deceptive. That is manipulative. That is something that should cause you to lose trust in that type of scholarship, not the Bible. Please hear me. That is, I don't know another word to call that other than deceptive. That is playing with numbers and playing with people's minds. And that is not, okay. honestly, I've gotten real riled up every time I've gotten to this part of the sermon when I've been <laughs> looking over it. Like, that's not okay. You call yourself a scholar, I need to stop. Um, that's just, that's not cool. <laughs> if, we, if we use that same math to analyze Dr. Ehrman's book, this is the ironic part of it. In his first printing of his book, there were 100,000 copies. Well, there were 16 typos found in that book. So by his own measurement, in the first run of his book, there were 1.6 million contradictions in his own book. He would not say that that is honest math. Please be careful when you go places and see that there are contradictions. And I don't say this to put him down. I just want you to be aware. Like, y'all, we, we have a Bible that, is, <laughs> that, we can, that, that can stand up to these things that people bring forth. Um, and y'all, furthermore, like, the Bible's not trying to hide anything. If you look at your footnotes all over the place, it's saying, hey, some manuscripts say it this way. Like, we're not trying to hide any of the different variations. It's out there in the open. You don't have to go digging for them to find them. They're, they're right here. Not trying to hide anything. All right, I got to get past that point. Um, that brings up the question now, have we outgrown the Bible? This sure, okay, it's a legitimate historical document. Shouldn't we just leave it in its time, though? Like, this is a really old book. Shouldn't we just leave it where it was? Like, we've gained so much knowledge since then that the Bible has essentially become obsolete, right? Like, we can't trust this to inform us today in 2023. Like, this thing's dusty and outdated. And as uh, C.S. Lewis said, our, our innate human bias is to think we're smarter than people who came before us, and therefore new ideas are naturally better or more truthful than old ones. That's kind of how we operate. And I think we would all probably say we feel that to an extent. Um, but that can't be how we approach truth, if you will. And that can't be how we do that. But the, uh, the American Humanist Association, they, they're on their website, it says this, because the writers of the Bible lived in an unenlightened era, this book contains many errors and harmful teachings. And I think you can probably see the problem with that thought process. Like 10 years from now, things are going to be outdated again. We're going to be more, quote unquote, enlightened 10 years from now than we are right now. It's going to be something that's constantly changing 
if we're looking at truth to be the most enlightened that it can be, right? Enlightened is going to keep changing. Guys, we can't have truth that changes. That's not truth. Um, if, if something's true now, it's going to be true in the future. Uh, but we, we all know that new doesn't always mean better, right? I mean, y'all, just look. I mean, the clothes you're wearing right now, you're going to look back on the, like someday, Rachel and I are now old enough that the, the era we grew up in is like decade day at high school, right? When you have homecoming week, we're one of those now. We're like, man, I guess we are that old. Scrunchies are back though, you know? Um, some of y'all probably judged me when I walked up here in a polka dot shirt. I don't know. Um, I thought about wearing this when I preached on Sunday and I thought, no, if this is some people's first introduction to me. Probably don't need to go with the polka dots. Uh, but yeah, this is, we can't judge truth based on how old something is. That's, that's not responsible intellectually. Uh, we can't say, man, this thing is outdated, so it's not true. We have to actually see whether or not something might be true first, regardless of its age or cultural norms, because y'all, cultural norms change. Nobody wants truth that changes. We want something we can stake our life on, right? We want something that doesn't move. Scripture says we have this faith that is an anchor for us. That's something I want in my life. We need something that doesn't move. And I, I want to say this too. Yes, we are always learning and growing, absolutely. But I don't think it's wise for us to base what we think of as truth based on our feelings. Just, just because I think this seems right. That's not... That's not a good way to go about developing our belief systems, right? And the, the two most prevalent ideas that, that people tend to discount the Bible because of are the doctrine, that I've seen at least, are the doctrine of hell and then LGBTQ plus issues. And y'all, I wish I had time to address those right here. I am way behind on the timer already. But we're thinking about uh, doing some podcast episodes following up from this series um, where maybe we can get into some of those things. But just know, I'm not trying to escape those specific things. We know they're there. I just don't have the time for it tonight. Um, but here's the cool thing. Maybe not the cool thing. We have an opportunity right now within American culture to see if some of this stuff actually works without Christianity because people are leaving the church faster than they ever have, right? Okay, so we get to run a social experiment on whether or not life outside the church, life uh, not living within a biblical worldview it should be better according to the secular worldview. That should be a better way of life. So uh, what are we actually seeing? Again, the American Humanist Association, their website says, um, specifically thinking about finances and, and giving and caring for people. What, what are we actually seeing as people leave the church? They say humanity's condition could be greatly improved if the resources people have given to the church were used for solving the world's problems instead of worshiping a non-existent God. I get what they're saying. I would also present to them that in 2022, uh, one of the studies that I looked at showed that there were approximately $136 billion given to benevolent things through churchgoers. I don't think we're better off without that $136 billion. That's just one aspect of it. And just the financial side of it. So what about public health, both physical and mental? Um, there are several studies we could pull from on this, um, but just looking at, and again, all this in the mindset of, okay, people are leaving the church, so things should be getting better, right? You don't have to look far to see that that doesn't seem to be the case. 
This is the director of the CDC's Adolescent and School Health Division. She said this about uh, adolescents today. She said, we've never seen this kind of devastating, consistent findings. There's no question young people are telling us they're in crisis. The data really calls on us to act. But that doesn't sound better to me. It doesn't sound like things are getting better. And I don't want to belabor the point here because like I said, I gotta just turn on the news and you can see, man, things aren't going well in general in American society. And you could see, you could expand that to the world as well. Um, so as church attendance plummets, what we should see according to a secular worldview is that society as a whole getting better, getting healthier mentally, physically, and we're not seeing that. We're not seeing those things happen. As people are running away from the Bible, they're not running to freedom. That's not what you're gonna find when you run from the Bible. Now, on the contrary, um, Oxford has a handbook of religion and health, looking at associations between health factors and church involvement, religious involvement. This is not talking only about Christianity, although Christianity is part of this. And their findings, are, they studied 300 studies um, and their findings on people's association with religion and health factors. So y'all across the board, all these things, positive associations with church, uh, with religious involvement and their well-being, hope, optimism, sense of purpose, sense of social support, recovery from depression, and less suicidal thoughts, attempts, and completions. That's just religious involvement. You know, hell, I would say that life following Jesus is gonna give you way better results than even those things because he came to give us an abundant, flourishing life and that doesn't stop in the first century. That still applies to us today. The way of Jesus is still good. Sometimes this, this is a thought I came across. I believe it was John Mark Comer that said this. Sometimes the things you were taught growing up are right. And that can feel like a profound thought to us at a time where we're always trying to learn the next new thing. Man, maybe if you've grown up in the church and you've learned the faith following after Jesus, man, maybe it was right all along. And it's not something that you need to work to try to walk away from. Maybe you've been in the right place the whole time. You know, if you're still on the fence, like I, I understand, maybe you're still questioning this book. And look, if you're looking for me to prove with evidence that this, is the, that this Bible is the word of God, you're probably gonna be disappointed at the end of this night because there's probably nothing I could say that is going to prove to you that this is the word of God. Because I get it. Like the fact that the early church believed it was the word of God doesn't prove that it's the word of God. The fact that Jesus believed that doesn't prove that it's the word of God. The fact that this same is the same document it was centuries ago, the fact that its principles still apply today, those things don't prove that it's the word of God. And that's why I don't want to leave us right there for tonight. Because here, here's where I want to leave us. Here's where I want to finish our time, y'all. This book is supernatural. This book is not just something to, for us to defend with archeological evidence, with uh, historical documentation. There's something special about this book if you'll give it a chance. That's where I want us to finish our time tonight. Like there, if this book really is the word of God, there should be something different about it. And I'm here to tell you there is. <laughs> 
I want you to see, I want you to get a little glimpse of that just by looking at the enormity of prophecy fulfilled, of things that were predicted in the Bible that have come to pass. This is an amazing, this is incredible, this is stunning if you'll actually consider it. This book was written over a 1500 year period, 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages it's written in. The fact that this goes together at all is kind of mind blowing. Like the fact that this makes any sense at all coming together as a collection of books really is a fascinating thing. And so we said earlier, this book still is what it says it is, so it hasn't been changed to make it look good after centuries of time. Yeah, this is incredible that this thing actually works together. Um, All that said, these few notes I wanna give you right here, um, I hope will give you real confidence in God. And I hope will maybe bring you a little bit closer to trusting this book if you're not there already. Um, There are so many just connections within this book. Approximately, the count we have as of right now is there are 63,769 instances of this book referencing itself. I think about that 1,500 years, the 40 different authors, the three continents, the three languages. For something like that to come together is incredible. Like over and over again, 63,000 times, this book weaves itself together and it becomes more tight and more tightly knit over and over again. That in and of itself feels like an act of God. We can go further though with thinking about just prophecy itself. So there are approximately 2,500 prophecies, predictions given in the Bible. We've seen about 2,000 of those already come true. And what I want us to do is just consider the ones that we're referring to the Messiah. So the savior that was to come and we call him Jesus. The Old Testament contained 300 statements about what the Messiah would be like, what his life would be like. And um, so start to wrap your mind around that, that we've seen Jesus fulfill those things. 300 things it said about the Messiah when he comes. Jesus fulfills all of those. The last book of the Old Testament was written 400 years before Jesus was born. You think like 400 years is a long time. 400 years ago, the King James Bible was the hot new translation. Like that's a long time ago. If you want an exercise in trying to predict something, man, you can't even predict, if you were to write down right now what state you think your spouse will be from, good luck even doing that. There's only 50 of them. You have no idea what tomorrow holds. Like to actually predict something in your life is nearly impossible, right? This is an incredible feat if it's any sort of prediction. And yet Jesus fulfilled all 300 about the coming Messiah. And I think the most astounding one for me uh, that you would see in Psalm 22 in Zechariah 12 is the prediction that he would be crucified. Here's why that one's so amazing to me, because crucifixion didn't exist when this was written. There was nobody that would be, that would die by crucifixion for another 400 years after these prophecies were written about the Messiah. Y'all, that's wild to predict how somebody would die when nobody has ever died that way before. And for 400 years later, that starts happening. That's, that's pretty unbelievable. Let's keep taking it further. You may remember Pastor Ravi mentioning a guy named Dr. Peter Stoner. We can chuckle for a second and then we're gonna refocus. It's really, I mean, 
That's an unfortunate name for such an academically inclined man. But he's, a, he's an expert in probability. So he's really good at figuring out things. What are the odds of this thing happening? And I want to give you the slightest little bit of a visual of what some of this would have looked like for Jesus to fulfill some of these prophecies. So he said that in order for one man to fulfill eight of the prophecies that were given about the Messiah, it would be the odds of one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a lot of zeros after that number one, one to the 17th power. But that's kind of a number like, I mean, you could wrap your mind around it if you really wanted to, big number. But that's just eight. Remember there are 300. If Jesus were to fulfill, if one man were to fulfill 16 of these prophecies about the coming Messiah, it would be 10 to the 45th power. You got a one with 45 zeros after it. Again, this is 16 of the prophecies. If Jesus were to fulfill 48 of the prophecies, it becomes one in 10 to the 157th power. Oh, this is a sixth of the prophecies that he actually fulfilled. I hope you, like that took me a long time to type out all those zeros and to go back and count those and to make sure it actually was right. You know, this is, this is an, we can't even fathom that number, right? Like this is a big deal that this would happen. This is 48 of the 300. The odds of Jesus actually, the only way this could happen is if it is an act of God, there is something supernatural about this book. Please, please hear that. You cannot, you cannot look at the evidence, if you want evidence, and we would call that evidence, you cannot look at that and in good intellectual conscience determine that there's nothing to this book. You can't do that. There is no way. There is something special, there is something supernatural about this book that we hold in our hands that we call the Bible, the Word of God. Y'all, the God, the God who weaves all of history together to produce a book like this. This could only be an act of God. And maybe the most astounding thing about it is that that same God who's in control of everything, who weaves this book together, who controls all of history, who orchestrates the whole thing, he sees you in the middle of all of it. He sees you and says, yes, I would die for that one. I'll die for her. I'll die for him. And he's got all of history, all of eternity in his mind's eye. And he says, yeah, I'd die for you. That's the most miraculous part of the whole thing. Now, Jesus wants you. Here's the thing. Sometimes we get off when we read the Bible because a lot of times we can kind of read it the wrong way. There's a guy named Marty Solomon. He said, the Bible is not, so often we read it as just a, a textbook. He says this, the Bible is not trying to validate itself. The Bible is trying to transform its reader. That's the goal of the Bible. The, goal is, the Bible's not trying to answer every single question you could possibly come up with. The, goal, the Bible is trying to transform you. He want, Jesus wants you to read this book and he wants you to find the grace and the freedom and the forgiveness that comes through his death and burial and resurrection. That's what he wants you to find in this book. But here's the thing about it. <laughs> the terrible thing about this book is that it's the most owned, least read book in history, right? This book cannot transform you sitting on your nightstand. This book only does its work. God can only do his work through his word 
if you'll spend time with it. God so desperately wants to spend time with you, man. Would you pick up your copy of the word of God? Would you let him do his work on you? Y'all hear, this is, this, is what I, this is where I want you to leave tonight. No matter where you walked into this room, no matter where you are listening to this later, if you're skeptical of the Bible, man, would you, would you just give it a chance? Would you give God a chance to do his work in you that he wants to do in your life? Because if, if there is the slightest chance this is truly the word of God, then man, you need to read this. You need to find out what's inside these pages. So here's my, here's my challenge for you as you move forward. If you are skeptical of the Bible, if you have never read it before, if maybe you want to know the Bible and you're a follower of Jesus, but you don't really know where to start, here's where I want you to start. Take the four gospels. So they're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're recording Jesus's life. There are 68 days left in the year. You can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke in those 68 days if you're reading one chapter a day, and then you can roll right into John to start 2024. But don't just read it. This, this is the real challenge. When you sit down with the Bible, I want you to actually ask God to reveal himself to you as you read. Would you, would you pray and ask sincerely, God, as I read this book, whatever you think about it right now, as I read this, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me as I read it? Man, we're gonna trust that that's a prayer that he'll answer. So here's what I wanna do as we close. I wanna read a couple of passages over you, just talking about the word of God and the effect it can have on your life and the work that it wants to do in you. So if you would go ahead and, and bow your heads and just in a, in a posture of humility and a posture of listening and asking God to speak to you, I, I wanna read these over you. And I want you to hear the supernatural nature that the Bible has. And the first section comes from Psalm 19, and this is David. So somebody who spent a lot of time in the word of God, here's what he says about the time that he spends reading God's word. Psalm 19, seven, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. Who, who doesn't want that? The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They're more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and they are sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. Y'all, that can be yours if you will spend time in this book. Isaiah 55 speaks to the work that God wants to do in your life. When you spend time in this word, if you'll do it sincerely, it is not going to be without effect. Isaiah 55 says this, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven, just as those things are sure, and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout. So get this picture in your mind. The rain falls and it hits the ground and it produces something, right? And providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Friends, that is what you can expect when you experience the word of God. God, as we come to you even now, would you speak to us through your Holy Spirit? 
God, I pray that when we come to your word, that we would not come just looking for information or for insights or observations. Those things are great. But God, when we come to the Bible asking for you to meet with us, God, you tell us that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And Lord, would you do that in the days ahead as we spend time with you? Lord, would you put a conviction on all of us that we can't shake to spend time with you and to see, man, what do you want to do in our lives as we spend time with you? God, may we, may we not neglect this book. Lord, for anybody that uh, needs their eyes open to the goodness of this word, I pray that you would do that right now. That they would be able to put their faith in this book that you so beautifully orchestrated you wove together. God, will we trust it and believe it to guide us in all of our lives. We'll pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.